So I want to look at the heart today because the Bible talks a lot about the heart. And uh, Psalm 139 is the passage we're going to be in for a little bit. There's going to be a lot of other passages. I'm going to warn you. I'm not going to take you to all of them, but I'm going to throw a lot at you. But I want you to know that this message is about the heart. You know, in earthly relationships, they can become complicated. The love that you felt at the beginning, it can begin to fade, just as friendships can fade with neglect. You don't spend time with your friends. You can, you know, you're still kind of friends. There's people in high school I knew. I still consider them friends, but we haven't talked in forever. Psalm 139, if you're turning there, and we'll get to it in a minute. But Proverbs 18, 24 tells us that a man that hath friends must show himself friendly, and there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. That friend is Jesus Christ. That brother is Jesus Christ. When it comes to a relationship with God, I'll often talk about it to people in terms of giving your heart to Jesus Christ or saying, you need to ask Jesus to come into your heart. You know, technically, that's not the way to, that's not the way to say it. But it's a simple thing. When the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about your essence. It's talking about you. In Easton's Bible Dictionary, they said, According to the Bible, the heart is the center, not only of spiritual activity, but of all the operations of human life. It's kind of like the control center for your life, the heart is. We read about it in the Bible. It said we're commanded to love God with all of our heart. Over in Deuteronomy 6, 5, it says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Now, that's a tall order for loving God. When you get caught up in the world, when you get caught up with the bills, when you get caught up with fixing the car, repairing the car, and things like that bringing that five-year-old CRV back online. But you get caught up in things. It says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. It's a complete love that we're to give him because he gives us a complete love. Over in Mark chapter 12, 30, it says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. When somebody came up and asked Jesus, what's the greatest of the commandments? And Jesus broke it down and he tells them, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. And then he added, and all thy strength. Everything that's within you to love God with, the the strength, the power to turn your heart toward God. And then over in... uh, And the scribe that was talking to Jesus in Mark chapter 12, verse 32 and 33, the scribe said, And the scribe said unto him, Well, master, thou hast said, For there is one God, and there is none other but he, and to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. You could offer a thousand cattle. You could offer a thousand sheep. And people do. People have given money to the church. People have given money to God's work. People have given their time to God. They've showed up at church and they said, what do you want me to do? I'll build. I'll paint. I'll work the sound. I'll do this. I'll do that. And they offer up 
all this stuff, all these sacrifices to God, but do you know, you know what he wants? He wants your heart. Amen. And to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your understanding, with all your mind is better than all the sacrifices and burnt offerings that you can give. You know what Jesus said to him? He said, it says, when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that durst ask him any question. You see the lawyer come up, they'd ask him the question, and the scribe would come up and said, Lord, which of these is the greatest of the commandments? And it's like, well, if there's one great one, then we can, maybe we can nudge around the other ones. And Jesus covered all the commandments within those two. He said, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's just a little aside. And uh, he said, so we're to love, our, love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And that's more better than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, knowing this, knowing what Jesus said, tells you the importance of your heart and your relationship with Jesus Christ. Are you walking along and you walk and you say, man, it just just doesn't seem like it used to. You know, you can walk along in a marriage. You know, it's not exactly like it used to. I can look at Dee Dee and it's like, well, I see you in this morning. I'll see you this afternoon. You know, I still want to be around you. But, you know, it's just not quite as magical as back then when I couldn't be with you or, you know. You look back at your first love. You look back at that time with Jesus Christ. You look back at that time in the Word of God, and you say, man, you know, I still read the Bible, and I'm still enjoying it. It's not quite all the way back there. <coughs> not quite what it used to be. The, uh, the thing is, you can be moving along just fine. A man can... Be walking, and I'm going to give another illustration after this one, but a man could be walking every day and, and doing just fine. But you put that man on a track, and he starts running laps. He needs more of his heart. You start finding out what's wrong. The feet start creaking. <laughs> the knees start aching. You know, the muscles, they get that lactic acid buildup. I love that phrase. And they start hurting. The lungs start working a little more than they're used to, and you start to realize, you know what? Them donuts and coffee might not be the best thing for me. In uh, in NASCAR, well, in a car, you know, and uh, I told them this morning in Sunday school, we, I got a car that's been sitting up for five years. We're working on it. We're trying to get it running again. You let a car sit up for five years, you know, the tires are going to get a flat spot and things like that, and I know that. But you can have a car that's doing good. Everyday driving, you're driving it to work, you drive it from point A to point B, you got a grocery getter, you're doing good. But uh, take that car onto the racetrack and shake it out. Start competing with another driver, and then you start to see what's, what's happening. You know, in NASCAR, that was my favorite phrase, there's nothing stock about a stock car. Before it goes, I don't even think they start with a car. Anymore, They got a frame and they just slap a sticker on the side. But all it is is an aluminum frame. They take out everything that's not needed. 
Radio, don't need it. Passenger seat, don't need it. Trunk, don't need it. Gas can, well, we need one, but we need a little better one. And, you, and it's, it starts getting tuned up and, and getting it ready to race. You know, it's kind of that way with your heart, with your relationship with God. You can be going along all right, but you start making that demand on it, and you start saying, well, I want to love God with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul, and with all my strength. And you, you say, I want to commit to you, Lord. And guess what's going to happen? You're going to start finding out there's some extra things that need to be unloaded. And to love our neighbors as ourselves. So in NASCAR, after every race, and this blew my mind when I first heard it years ago. After every race, they'll take that car and they'll put it in the garage. And the mechanic will go there and he, he's got that socket set all pretty, just waiting. He just pulls the drawer open. Slaps it on there. First thing he does is start taking that engine apart. He said, well, it's still running. I mean, they drove it in there. Uh-uh. This thing has to be able to compete. This thing has to be ready to go. And he starts tearing it down, replacing the rings. He starts changing. The oil gets changed. The, everything gets changed out of it. They start replacing parts and all that. Flush the injectors, replace the oil. Everything has to be running in top condition or they may not even finish the race, let alone compete in the top five. Paul said in Hebrews 12, y'all are saying, oh, we're going too far down the NASCAR road. Well, listen to me. Paul said in Hebrews chapter 12, he said, Wherefore, seeing we, are also, we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us wait, lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. You start, you, you say, I'm going to commit to God and I'm going to serve you with all of my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul. And you start to find out about those things, that sin which starts to weigh you down. It didn't seem like a big thing. I'm not even going to start naming it because God's already spoken to your heart. That, that thing that holds you back, that thing that you know, it trips you up. And it just kind of keeps that little bit of distance. God... I want you right here, but there's just going to be a little buffer here, uh, just a little bit here, you know. Lot coming out of Sodom and Gomorrah, I, I love that phrase <laughs> because I said, well, I'm not alone. And Lot gets out, and, and the city's falling apart. Lot had pitched his tent towards Sodom, and he ended up living in Sodom, and the, and the angels had to come in and deliver him out of there. And, and the city was the whole reason Sodom, uh, Lot was in that mess, and he gets pulled out of the city, and they, they have to yank him out. He loses family. He loses his daughters, his son-in-laws. They mock him. The whole town mocked him. He'd done things for the town. They mock him. Everything that he had, he went from having all the cattle. He had so many cattle, he couldn't even dwell with Abraham. And he gets into Gomorrah, and by the time he comes out of Sodom, it was Sodom. By the time he comes out, he's got nothing but the shirt on his back. He doesn't even have his wife because she looked back and turned into a pillar of salt. He gets out there and the angel says, flee to the mountains. And Lot, he's got a thing for cities. <coughs> what does Lot say? He says, not so, Lord. 
But if I go there, I'll die. The angel's telling you to go there. The angel, the one that pulled you out of Sodom, he's telling you to go to the mountain. Not so, Lord. If I go there, I'll die, surely. But over here is a city. Is it not a little one? It's just a little city. And that's how we are. It's, Lord, I've given you all of this, and you've pulled me out of a life of sin, and you've pulled me away from those things that were sending me to death. And you get delivered out, and you say, well, not so, Lord. It's just a little sin. It's just a little sin. Is it not just a little sin? You know, we laugh at the Bible characters or we say, whoa, you know, that wasn't too bright. I think they're sitting up in heaven saying, whoa, that's not too bright either. So what you're hanging on to is what's separating you from God. It may not seem like much, you know, but when you get out on the track and you're saying, Lord, I'm going to serve you with all my heart, my mind and my soul. And you get out on that track and you start trying to compete and you start realizing this is, this is too much. This sin's weighing me down. This is holding me back. I'm not able to make the lap time. I'm not able to keep up with you, Lord. I'm, I'm, my prayers just aren't quite getting out like they ought to be. And that doesn't mean that every prayer is going to be answered. That doesn't mean that every road's going to be smooth. That doesn't mean that every path is going to be straight. But what it means is God's going to be right there with you, and you can trust him. Do you find yourself, when you get into trouble, do you find yourself saying, you know, I, I don't know, Lord. I don't even know if you're there. There might be something extra that needs to be taken care of. So in this passage, and now we'll read it, and we're, it's just two verses here, but verse number 23 of Psalm 139. <coughs> David asked for something here from the Lord. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. I think David's asking for a spiritual tune-up. Let's just put it like that. And I think that's what we need to do. Every time we go to church and every time we open the Bible and every time we want God to speak to us, I think we ought to be asking for a spiritual tune-up. Lord, show me what's holding me back. So David asked three things here. He says, search me and know my heart. Number two, he says, try me and know my thoughts. And the purpose is to see if there be any wicked way in me. And number three, he says, he asked the Lord to lead him. So I want to look at that. I, I keep thinking about NASCAR as the illustration because, you know, they do everything within their power to keep their cars running in peak condition. The driver may know how to work on a car, but they've got a mechanic that knows every part of that car. I... I I would about guarantee without knowing them that there's mechanics that know every torque setting or every nut on that, on that car because they've taken it apart so many times and they, they know how it works. They know, they know where the lines go. They've, they've worked on it and they've put the tie wraps in the same, I don't know, but they know every aspect of that car. 
So if you're going to find out what's slowing you down in your life, if you're going to get a spiritual tune-up in order to know what's wrong in your lives, you need to go to the one who knows the most about you. Look at the beginning of Psalm 139 with me. The Psalm 139 starts out, and, and the way Psalm 139 works, another sermon would be God's omniscience, God's omnipotence, and God's omnipresence, not necessarily in that order. But here in verses 1 through 5, he says, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. He's asking God to search him, but he said, Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Isn't that nice? When we don't even know what to pray, God knows. When we don't even know what's bothering us, God knows. He already knows what you're going through. Thou compassest my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand on me. Now, we may think we know about ourselves because we're the ones that got to deal with ourselves every day. We're the ones that got to get up every morning. We've brushed every tooth how many times? We've combed every hair. We, we know all this stuff about us. But the truth is, God knows us better than you could ever know. So David goes to God and asks him to do the searching and to know what's in his heart. So understand that when God does the searching, he already knows what's there. Who's the searching for? It's for you to know. It's to help you. And in today's world, when we look at the heart, one of the first things to know about the world, about your heart, in today's world, what do you hear in a movie? You got a young girl, she's dating a guy, and mom, I, I just don't know whether to marry him. And what does mom say? Follow your heart, dear. I, I, I don't know if I need to go. Follow your heart, dear. Whether it's in songs, whether it's in movies, and books, and poetry, it says follow your heart. According to the Bible, that's a dangerous thing to be doing. Over in Jeremiah, Jeremiah says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. The heart can mislead you if that's all you're listening to. Following your heart's basically telling your flesh, let's go. Wherever you want to lead me, let's go. Over in Genesis chapter 6, we see God looking down at man. They've, they've been out of the Garden of Eden, and you look at it dispensationally. It's right before the flood. God, man's kind of living under conscience. It's, it's, you know, he's working under his own conscience. In verse number 5 of chapter 6, it says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You know, I tell myself, man, I would hate to know what's going on back then. And then another voice says in my head, why don't you just look at what's going on now? Because here we are. Hey, 
If, if we could only have a flood, but God promised never to flood it again. In the New Testament, Jesus explains how the things that come out of the heart are what defiles a man. In verse uh, Matthew 12, 34, he said, O generation of vipers, how can ye, and he's talking to the Pharisees, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. All of, out of the wickedness of your heart, your mouth speaks. And in Mark chapter 7, verses 20 to 23, and he said, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. So if you can't trust yourself to find out what's wrong with you, what's blocking you, you turn to God. So if we're to love God with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. David goes to God. He said, search him. Know his heart. He wants to be closer to God. He sees that God's omniscient, all-knowing. Look what he says in verse number six. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain to it. If he wants to understand God, his plans, his knowledge, his way, there are some nuts that need to be torqued right. And uh, there's some oil that needs to be changed. He needs, a tear, he needs a tear down and rebuilding if he's going to maintain fellowship with the Lord. So we ask God to search and know his heart. Over in Romans eight twenty seven, it says, And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now, I'm wearing out this NASCAR illustration, I understand, but it just still works. Because once that car has been torn down, it's all been torn down and set aside, cleaned up. Any of the shavings, anything have been taken care of, they rebore it, whatever, and then they put it back together. Is that car ready to race right then? It's not you got to try it. you got to prove that that car is going to work on the track. It wouldn't do you any good to say, yeah, it's good. You get out there on race day, it hadn't been touched since then. You get out there on race day when it really matters, when it's really needed. They get it out there and, oh, turns out it was another problem. they got to prove it. they got to try it. So, We've studied David's life in Sunday school. We've seen at times he relied on the Lord, and then we see at other times he relied on himself. We see times when he prayed and asked God what to do next, and we see times when David said, Saul's going to kill me. i got to get out of here. Where before he was relying on him to provide for him in all his tribulation. So just having the knowledge of what's wrong isn't enough. Knowing the heart and knowing what needs to be changed isn't enough. David asked God, try me and know my thoughts. And it isn't until things are tested that we know how they're working. Over in James chapter 1, 
verses 22 to 24, it said, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. We're to be doers of the word. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he is. And how many times has God shown you something? And I shared something with you all in Sunday school, and if you weren't there, you just missed out. But when God speaks to you like that, there's two things you can do. You can say, well, that was interesting. And that's like the man. He sees himself. God's hold up the mirror to your face, and he's shown you the problems. You've seen the warts. You've seen the sin in your life that needs to be taken care of. You've seen the things that are stopping your prayers from getting past the ceiling. And you say, hmm. And then you go on back to what you're doing. But we've got to be doers of the word. There's something that needs to happen. So David, he says, search me. He says, try me. It has to be proven. And it's got to be taken out. So, in other places in the Psalms, David talks about God proving and testing him. Over in Psalm 26, verse 2, he says, examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. Now, there's many great tests of faith in the Bible. This morning, I want to look at two examples of God testing men and the results that those tests taught those men. It taught them something about themselves that they didn't realize about themselves. Now, you know the story of Job. He's minding his own business. His children have a party, and he sacrifices for them just in case one of them slips out a dirty word or something. He says, you know, it may be that they've sinned in their heart and not realize it, and he'd offer up a sacrifice for them. He was a wealthy man. He had many sheep. He had many children. That was a sign of wealth in those days, and he was, he was, he was set. But he gave God the glory for everything. And uh, one day the sons of God were standing before the throne, and Satan was there. And over in Job chapter 1, verse 8, it says, And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? And right there from that point, Job's life is upended. And why was it? It's because God turned to Satan and said, Have you considered my servant Job? Now God, knowing all things, he's putting Job through a test, through a trial. His children were killed, his cattle were stolen, and that wasn't enough to make him curse God. So Satan came and he said, skin for skin, all that a man hath will he give for his life. So God said, touch him, only, not, only save him alive. His three friends come over and they sit there. The best thing they do is they sit there quiet for, I think, three days. They don't say a word. But then they start opening up their mouths. And by the end of it, Job's saying, miserable comforters you are. (laughs) Because they try to tell him, Job, there's some kind of sin in your life. There's something that's causing all these troubles to come on you. And, you know, Job, we look back and we say, Job is proof. that just because you're close to God doesn't mean you're not going to hit trials. You're not going to hit. And this is what God tries to show you. So Job predicted 
Job's response was that they were miserable comforts. Job predicted the outcome of his trials in chapter 23. And this is just kind of hitting some high spots here. But over in chapter 23, verses 10 to 12, he says, But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot hath held his steps. His way have I kept and not declined. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Job was confident When I come out of the other side of this, when God has tried me, I'll come out as gold. And because I've followed, I've I've treasured God's words. I've treasured the things. You know, I've I've followed God and all that he said. But you know what happens by the time God's through dealing with him? Turn over to Job chapter 42. I want to show you all this. Look at Job chapter 42, verse number 1. See, God's been talking to Job, and he's been dealing with him. (coughs) Like over in, you don't have to go there, but over in 39, verse 19, Hast thou given the horse strength? Hast thou clothed his neck with thunder? Canst thou make him afraid as a grasshopper? The glory of his nostrils is terrible. He paweth in the valley, and he rejoiceth in his strength. He goeth on to meet armed men. God's talking about all the things that he gave power. He said, can you draw out Leviathan with a hook? He's, He's showing Job how insignificant he is as he's talking to Job. Job is a great book. And you get to chapter 42, And Job speaks again. He says, then Job answered the Lord and said, and this is after the trial, and this is after God deals with him, and after God searches him and knows him and proves him. He says, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. I was talking about you, Lord, but I really didn't understand the glory that is you. And, you know, I hear some of these preachers, and, and uh, you'll, you'll hear Calvinist preachers, and they'll talk about God's glory. And Man, you, you talk about questioning your salvation, not realizing how glorious my the amount of glory in God, the, the creation, all the things that he has done, it's overwhelming. He says, here I beseech thee, verse number four, this is Job, and I will speak, I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. Verse number five, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. So look at verse number five. He says, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. You know, we hear that again over in the New Testament, over in John chapter number four. The woman goes and witnesses to the people of Samaria, and they come and speak with Jesus. And they said, now we we believe, not because you told us, but because we've seen Jesus. And Job is saying, I've heard about you. I've heard about God, and I've worshiped God, and I've I've heard your word, and I've read your words. He said, but now I see you. And that's when you reach that point where you're loving God.
with all your heart, your mind, and your soul, and your strength. When you see God, it's not just emotion. It's not just drumming something up. But it's understanding what God has done in your life when you look back over things and you see the blessings that God has given. Another example is Peter. The Lord says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. Peter was confident. He said, but I have prayed. Jesus said, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fell not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Jesus put him through a test. And Peter thought he was doing fine. He said, Lord, I'm ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. He was ready to fight. He thought he had it all figured out. The king is coming in, and I'm going to be fighting at his side. And there's going to be blood up to the bridles. Man, we're going to, we're going to take this place back. And I'll, I'll be right there with you, even under prison and to death. And Jesus said, before the cock crow three times, you're going to deny me. He said, Peter, I tell you, the cock shall not crow this day before thou shalt thrice deny me. And then he had denied him, and when he heard the cock-a-doodle-doo, says he went out and wept bitterly. God had searched him and known his heart. God had tried him to see if there was any wicked way in him. So when you reach that point, when God showed you, when God searched you, when he showed you that thing in your life that's blocking you, David asked one more thing. He says, lead me in the way everlasting. So once God has shown you and tried you and you see the problem clearly the way Job did, over in 42.6, Job, before he had said, I'll, be, I'll come out as pure gold. At the end of the book, you know what he says in verse number 6 of 42? He says, wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. What happened to the gold, Job? I'm nothing. You, you think you got it all under control. You know, you just lost it. Psalm 139, 24, and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So there's two parts to this. We're almost done if you've been twitching. There's two parts to this. When you ask God to lead you in the way, number one, you need a purpose in your heart. Because if you follow your heart, it's going to mislead you. So you got to take control of your heart. You had a purpose in your heart. Kind of like the power steering. We talked about how, how far are you getting out of God's way if you if you're moving, if you're taking charge, you've got to ask God to guide you. You know, when you got the power steering, when, you're, when you don't have the power steering and you're sitting there in the car, you can't turn it. But when you get to rolling, and I heard this 25 years ago, but when you get to rolling, man, it just turns easy, right? And it's kind of like God steering you. If you're just sitting still, what's he gonna do? what can he do for you? Job said in Job 31.1, he said, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? He made a determination. He wasn't going to think upon a maid. Over in Ezekiel chapter 18, Ezekiel tells him through, God tells him through Ezekiel, it says, cast away from all you your, your transgression, whereby you have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit, for why will you die, O house of Israel? 
And then when Solomon made up his mind to do something, he gave his heart to do the job. Over in Ecclesiastes 1.13, he said, I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of man. But he gave his heart to seek and to search out wisdom. Over in verse 17, he said, And I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And then the other thing, because you can't do it yourself, you can purpose in your heart, you can make up your mind, and I always give the example of going to church or whatever, reading your Bible, whatever it is, it's between you and the Lord, but it's what's keeping you from loving God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Purpose in your heart that you're going to change that. And then number two, and we're almost done. Y'all hang in there. Man, I see some tired looks out there. Is it ask God to create a clean heart within you? Because if you just hang on to your sin and you're asking God to create a clean, he's like, this is in the way. I've already told you about this. I've already told you that you need to take care of this. You begin to get that out of the way. Lord, please, create in me a clean heart. And that's where we get to 1 John 1, 9. Amen? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not just confessing. It's getting rid of it. It's stepping away from it. It's not doing it over and over again and saying, Lord, forgive me, Lord, forgive me, Lord, forgive me. And we do that, and we can, but... It's insanity, right? It's doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Keep going back to it. The dog returning to his vomit. The pig returning to the wallowing in the mire after it's been washed. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's being honest. Over in Psalm 51.10, David prayed in this psalm. He wrote after the sin with Bathsheba. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. It's not just you getting right with God. It's you getting a sin out of the way, but Lord, create in me a clean heart. Over in verse 17, he says, the sacrifices of God, and y'all have heard me quote this a few times, are a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou will not despise. It's when you put yourself aside, and it's when it's like Joseph. It's like, uh, it's like Job when he said, I'm, <laughs> I'm nothing but dust and ashes. I'm, I'm nothing. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. It's being broken over your sin. Over in Jeremiah 24, 7, he said, I will give them a heart to know me. He's talking about the people of Israel, his people, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. And over in Ezekiel eleven nineteen, and I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh, and will give them a heart of flesh. Now I know the context; he's talking to his people Israel, but we see an application to us that God is capable of changing your heart. Your heart grows hard, and you don't even you don't even feel the need for change anymore. Lord, created me a clean heart. Lord, softened my heart. I heard a preacher one time, the Lord returned my tears. In Jeremiah 31, 33, and we're still almost done. 
just like we were 20 minutes ago when I said it. But this shall be a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. The first step on any of this, and I'm talking to Christians, but there may be somebody that doesn't know Jesus Christ. You can ask Jesus to come into your heart, come into your life. You can give your heart to God. The Bible says over in Romans 10, for it is with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. If you'll stand.